0: Welcome to the Word Theater Short Story Podcast, your weekly access to the best short stories read by great actors. My name is Cedaring Fox, Word Theater's founder and artistic director. And together with my UK producing partner, Kirsty Peart, we have been producing live events featuring great actors and authors, bringing short stories to life in Los Angeles, New York, and London for over 20 years. Please note that Word Theatre holds the copyright to these recordings, and no portion of anything you hear on the Short Story Podcast may be reproduced without permission. Today, we honor a longtime friend to Word Theatre, David Soule, who passed from this world on Thursday, January 4th, 2024. Our hearts are full of his passion, love, and zest for life, language, and music. He always said yes when we called. David even came camping with us at the Latitude Festival up in Suffolk, England, where he bonded with Brian Cox, who was also game enough to contend with sleeping in a tent, so they could dazzle hundreds of people sitting at their feet, listening intently on the literature and poetry stages. Today, you will hear David's rich, emotive voice as he introduces his performance of My Uncle's Numbers. A story by Steve Cetering, my mother. David Soule, perhaps best known for playing Hutch in the hit series Starsky and Hutch, had a widely successful musical and acting career spanning nearly 60 years. David first broke into the world of entertainment as a folk singer in Minneapolis, which led to appearances singing on the Merv Griffin Show in New York. David's first TV role was in 1966, appearing in the show Flipper. David appeared in over 30 TV shows, 15 movies, he released 10 albums, starred on the West End, and lent his voice to countless programs. But most importantly, to my Word Theatre producing partner and myself, and everyone, all the actors and authors who had the great pleasure of working with him at Word Theatre, David had the world's greatest laugh, He was warm, wonderful, incredibly bright and talented and loved sharing his prodigious gifts. The first time he read for us was in 2007 and his performance of Tobias Wolff's Bullet in the Brain is indelibly etched in the memories of all 220 people who were present at the Cafe de Paris that night in London. David was generous and brilliant and we will miss him terribly. Here now is David's introduction and his reading of My Uncle's Numbers by Steve Cederman.
1: Walking in the shoes of this fascinating character, I took a journey with him through an incredible life and yet one with which I felt I could identify. Cedaring's depiction of this Swedish man who immigrated to America and lived life fearlessly, proudly, even brashly, while harboring a secret tender regret, is authentic and haunting. After reading this piece, I'm not surprised to learn that Siv Cedaring was a renowned Swedish-American author and poet. Her uncle's voice is clear, strong, and above all, passionate. And for me, well, I, I felt as though he was speaking through me. So please just sit back and enjoy. My Uncle's Numbers
2: Esther Holman was the best. We never had words, never, never not a single bad word. But I knocked her up. (laughs) I didn't know I knocked her up. When my mother was in the hospital in Yokomok, Esther visited her every day. I guess she was stuck on me from the beginning. Me? Well, when I was up there racing,
3: skis, sure, I was good. I came in third that time. I was just 16. Usually I came first um,
2: in Lapland. I was working on the railroad and could lay 53 ties a day. That was the record in Sweden.
3: About 10 years later, when I was in Canada, someone beat it. They say 57, but while I was in Sweden, I held the record. So when this bastard told the cop that I'd left work early one day, I beat the bastard up. I didn't leave my job. I was working on contract and i already laid 40 ties, the fool. Sure, I was drunk when <laughs> I beat him up. So they put me in jail for seven days when I got out, I went right to the railroad station where that bastard's father was station master, and he sat behind the glass window. And when he looked up and asked me what I wanted, pow, right through the window. I didn't knock him out, but boy, did he fly back. (laughs) And the glass, oh, you should have seen it.
2: (laughs) I knew they'd be after me and that the police would be smart enough to check the train station. So I walked through
3: the woods to a place where the train had a down. And when it came, I waited for the last car and swung myself aboard. I went to Galivar, where my mother had a sister. But I was afraid they would catch up with me there. So after three days,
2: I took the train all the way to Shkodd where mother had another sister, Hannah. Now, Hannah was not neat like my mother. But never mind, she was good. The whole family was. And they helped me get
3: my job digging potatoes. But digging potatoes was no job for someone like me. So I went to stay with another aunt in
2: Göteborg. Her husband got me a job as a longshoreman. And we were supposed to... Shovel up coal and carry it in boxes. And I thought, well, that's easy. I was
3: strong and fast. Everybody noticed. But when I was almost done, I saw the smaller pieces were left and had to be picked up by hand. Well, the other guys laughed. But one man, one who was a
2: good man, said, I can see you're a greenhorn. Let me show you. And he did. And then
3: I got a job mixing cement, which I already knew how to do, so I made good money. Seven crowns an hour. Not seven crowns a day, but seven an hour. Now,
2: that's more than a dollar. That was a lot in the 20s. When I had enough, I took a boat to America. My mother died when I was two days out to sea. Or was it? Two days after I got to New York, I can't remember. I can't remember everything.
3: Her hair was so long, she could sit on it. And she was so kind. It makes me want to cry when I think of her. They say our dog, Jack, missed her
2: so much that he howled on her grave every night, and they had to shoot him. But my father, That was a son of a bitch. I had to start working when I was
3: six. Six! I had to do the rowing when I went fishing. And in the winter, I had to push the sled full of fish all the way home, 20 kilometers. Sometimes I did it on my skates. 20 kilometers there and 20 kilometers back is too far for a kid. And I had to carry in all the wood for heating the house and for cooking and and stack it and chop it. And I was supposed to work on a farm outside of North Dakota. But I jumped off the train outside Chicago and went to Canada. (laughs) And then west.
2: And I was made to shovel shit. First, I logged. Right after the first week, I did
3: everything on contract. I saw what the other guys got done, and I knew how much they got paid. So I went to the boss, and I told him I wanted to be paid per tree. I had seen him watching me work. So when he said, no, I said, I quit. So of course he kept me on, on contract. He was no fool. I logged over the Yukon and British Columbia. Sometimes it was 50 below zero. You know how to survive when it's 50 below zero? Uh, You dig a large hole in the snow and you cover it with logs. And on top of them, you put branches. Spruce is nice to sleep on. And then you build a fire under the logs so the heat slants toward the place where you sleep. That's how you keep warm. And keep the wolves away, too. I mined all along. In three years, I was on a fishing boat as a cook. Those guys never ate better.
2: (laughs) Sure, things were tough. Nothing's easy. During the Depression, I had no money for food for 12 days.
3: For 12 days, I walked across Vancouver Island and ate whatever I could find. Worms, I could eat anything. Seagulls don't taste very good, (laughs) but you can eat them if you have to. Now I figured Sweden couldn't be much worse. So I beat a freight from Vancouver to Montreal. On top of the boxcars, me and another guy. And then on to Halifax. And when we got to Stockholm, we went right to the place where Esther worked.
2: Dahlberg's Restaurant. I had the address, Small Grand 2. I can
3: still remember the meal we had. A fillet of beef with horseradish
2: sauce. You bet it tasted good. Esther and I had some good times, only good times.
3: She liked to dance, too. I remember we went to the Grand Hotel and danced and danced. And they were playing the Charleston, and when my legs were good, I just couldn't keep them still. And everybody wanted to know who I was, and all the elegant ladies wanted me
2: to teach them the new steps. But I danced mostly with Esther. You should have seen us. But the Fjarding's man, what's the word in English?
3: He was after me to sign up in the army, so I took off. People were starving all over America, but that was better than being in the service or in jail. I had been in Stockholm for six months. She wrote me, but I didn't get the letter for months. I had moved three times looking for work. And when I finally
2: got the letter, it was too late. She had gone to a midwife and gotten rid of it. And then she moved. I couldn't get a hold of her. She wanted to come to Canada. I was i was her first. I know. I saw the blood. She was a good girl. Well, then
3: then I began making beer and uh, hard stuff. Got very busy. Hell, I made the best stuff in all of Canada. Just like it said in that newspaper clipping you saw. And it was shipped all over the country to the United States, too. Now, this was during prohibition. And I supplied all the bootleggers all around Vancouver, that's for sure. It was the purest stuff made in the whole country, like the damn paper said. And they looked for me on the, the long for the longest time. <laughs> I had a house on a hill in West Vancouver <laughs> with a still upstairs so the booze could run down and be bottled downstairs. And then one day when I was driving off on a delivery, I saw this car in the rearview mirror and gunned it, and you should have seen us, and up and down hills and speeding around curves. It was a hell of a chase. <laughs> yeah, sure I did some time. <laughs> but not too long. A lot of people were going thirsty. <laughs> Al Capone was right. He was all right. He never dealt with drugs. They would shoot drug dealers. They should shoot them. Just like that. That's bad stuff. But Capone never bothered with drugs or women.
2: Just bootlegging. No, I I didn't meet him myself. But someone did on my behalf
3: and said he was a civil man. Polite. And you could trust him. But I, I did meet Bing Crosby. He was a fine man. You could see it in his face. We were talking horse shit. He was trying to corner the horse shit market on the West Coast. And Crosby needed some. He was raising mushrooms. (laughs) So I went there twice, to Hollywood. The second time, he wasn't there. He was sharp and kind, but his sons... Oh, well, that's another matter. Stuck up and empty-headed,
2: no-goods. I also met Victor Matur, a big phony. This was after me and Vivian split. So you met her when she came to Sweden, huh? In 46, was it? I
3: don't know if you know, but my brother came to Göteborg to meet her at the boat and saw her kissing this other guy. Now, that wasn't the only problem. I had been working up in the Yukon and sent her all the money I
2: earned to put in the bank. Now, she did, but in only her name. She sold the house, too, and
3: bought another one instead, but only in her name. And she bought a restaurant in Seattle. She was no dummy. And she was a good dresser. Nothing fancy, just good, classy stuff. Anyway, when I got back and found out that she'd been putting away everything in her name, well, we were out for dinner, and she was showing off, talking about it in front of others. So when we got
2: outside and were standing by the car, I smacked her, just like that, right in the face. And that was that. No, I'm not sorry. I smacked her. I had trusted her. And she had double-crossed me. She had taken
3: everything. All I had left was my truck. And that's why I started the cement business. I built that warehouse you saw and made foundations and sidewalks and driveways. I built my share of Vancouver. And I continued to mine all over British Columbia. I staked 18 claims in Lillouette. It's a crown grant registered with the queen. We put in a 392-foot tunnel, and there's ore there that gets 2% gold of every ton. Don't you understand? And silver and zinc lead, the main vein runs visibly for 500 feet, and there are other veins. We've cut a road in over the hump of the mountain. It's 6,000 feet high, and the road is 15 miles long. And I have a claim near the Alberta border, too. Used to be only partly mine, but now I own it all by myself. And I got a mine up in the Yukon, near Alaska, in the Keno Mountains near Keno City. Now, Vivian had a restaurant up north, too. Did quite well. She was smart, except when it came to me. And could she sing? <laughs> Her- her voice was so sweet. There was this one song that she sang over and over. Ah uh, The Blue Bird of Happiness You know it? it uh, so be like I hold your head up high till you find the blue bird and when she sang it everybody cried. She would sing it at parties. They wanted her it on stage, but she had terrible, terrible stage fright. It's too bad she had stage fright. She wanted us to remarry later, but I married once and that was that. And
2: she died of cancer when she was 63. And uh, I used to go up and, uh, and see her. Now, Esther Hallman was different. We never had a word, never. I didn't know that I had knocked her up. When I finally got her
3: letter, it was too late. I want to send her some money, 5,000 or $10,000, maybe 20,000.
2: I saw her in Bowdoin in 1983 and she's married has a husband and children
3: grandchildren, and I visited them at their summer place, and no, no, we, we didn't talk about it. That happened in 1932, for God's sake. What's there, what's there to talk about? I mentioned her in my will, but I'm going to ask the lawyer to change it. I don't want her husband to get it if she dies first. I, I want
2: her to have it. She was the best woman I ever knew. You you be sure to write her for me. And say that in a letter.
3: Tell her I'm sorry for what I did. Tell her tell her I didn't get her letter
2: until it was too late. Tell her about the stroke So she knows I can't write. Or read. Except the numbers in the stock market report.
3: I used to read all the time. I like to read Marx and Spinoza and Schopenhauer and my history of the
2: world. I've read them many, many times. And my book on Einstein. Pain? I'm in pain all the time. But that is that.
3: It's feeling so weak that I can't stand. And worrying that no one will find me if I die. I don't wanna lie here and rot. I told the accountant that if I die, the body might be in the room stinking for days. So he he promised to phone me every day. I, I told him about the place in North Vancouver, the place where they burn people. I told him what to do. Throw the ashes in the garbage can or in English Bay. But if I get over the operation, who knows?
2: (laughs) I might be around for another 77 years. And when I get too bad, I know what to do. I can do it myself. Like I cut off that goddamn finger.
3: I had cut it off when a a part of it logging and the goddamn stump was in the way all the time. So I chopped it off. On purpose, with just a little whiskey to help. Or maybe not so little.
2: I still like whiskey. But I don't drink much anymore. My, my legs are giving me trouble. I wish I could just chop them off and be done with the pain.
3: After the stroke, I, I was in the hospital for a week. And when they let me out, I, uh, I, I didn't know where I was. And I,
2: uh, I, I couldn't read the street signs. But I knew I had to go towards the mountains. So I walked. I didn't remember my address, but I walked block by
3: block. First, I found the way to my office. And then eventually to my apartment building. It took me all day. Oh, yes, this, this place is nice. It's a super value and, and safe way. The bank and the fish market are all within one block. And the park is just uh, just four blocks away. And, and, and two down to English Bay. And when I'm up, I can count the freighters waiting in the harbor. Sometimes I, I can count 12 or 15
2: from all over the world. I don't want to be in no graveyard. I want to
3: burn. Put the ashes in the garbage can. What do I care? Or throw them in the English Bay. Salt shock. I don't want no funeral arrangements.
2: Scattering the ashes in Lillooette. No, don't you understand? It doesn't matter what happens to the goddamn ashes. What's the difference? You're dead, you're dead. No I, uh, no, I don't have anybody except the accountant and the lawyer. And I talk
3: to the broker almost every day. No, no, I don't want a nurse. I have managed by myself this long. I've lived alone all my life except
2: those years in the 40s with Vivian but you can call me. Call me. I I don't want to lie here and rot. And that shoebox with the pictures, you keep it. I don't want anybody else to have them. And send that letter to the address I gave you. Tell her I'm sorry for what I did in 1932 before Christmas. Tell her I didn't get her letter until it was too late. Tell her I've thought about her all these years.
0: I hope you have been moved by David's performance of My Uncle's Numbers by Steve Cedaring. If you are a patron or enthusiast member and would like to see other of David's performances, head over to wordtheater.org and visit your members area. And by the way, if you're not yet a contributor, please become a member. It's never too late. A little about the author. Born in Sweden, Sieve Seedering was an acclaimed poet and author who published 22 books of poetry and fiction. She was also a painter, composer, screenwriter, and translator. One of her novels, Oxen, was adapted into a film titled The Ox, which received a nomination for the Academy Award for Best Foreign Film. Directed by Sven Nykvist, Ingmar Bergman's cinematographer, it starred Liv Ullmann and Stellan Skarsgård. Steve Cedering also passed from this world much too young. Special thanks to Jonathan Sachs for composing our theme music, to the LA County Department of Arts and Culture for their continuing support, to our podcast editor Jason Lee, to you for listening, and forever and ever to David Soul.